about the karmakanda response. The karmakanda response to uh, to the Shramana Buddha Jain challenge. And uh, let's see, where do we begin here? Now, mimamsas. The word mimamsa comes from the Sanskrit root man, which means to think. So basically, literally, mimamsa means thinking really hard. Really thinking hard about things. And so, you know, it comes to me, they, they say it, it means exegesis, which just means trying in a rational, logical way to figure out what a sacred text means. We got this scripture, what does it really mean? So, uh, Limam says uh, their position. They basically, their aim was Vedic apologetics. They're being challenged by, especially by the Buddhists and also the Jains who reject the Vedas. And, this, and the first stratum of Vedic literature, the original Vedas, deal with sacrifice. The Rig Veda, Rig means him. The hymns are chanted at the sacrifice. Yajur Veda, the word Yajur means explanations of how to do sacrifice, what sacrifices mean. Sama Veda, their melodies that you chant the hymns of the sacrifice, and so on and so forth. So the Vedas, the original Vedas, the Samhitas, the collections, were about sacrifice. And the Mimamsas have a slogan, or they have this one Vedic statement, which is kind of epitomizes what they think life is all about. And that is Swarga Kamo Yajeda. And just by explaining this little sentence, you'll understand what are about. So here's the translation. Swarga means heaven in Sanskrit. Kama, like Kama Sutra. Kama means a material, well, just a desire. The most basic meaning, a desire. So one who desires heaven. One who desires to go to heaven. Swarga Kamo Yajeda. Now, the, this is the root, yaj. This is the verb. Yaj means to sacrifice. Yajeta is a grammatical form which means must sacrifice or should sacrifice. So basically, so this sentence means one who desires heaven must sacrifice, must perform sacrifice, the Vedic sacrifices. And the Imamsas will say a few things. Uh, they'll say that you have all these Vedic books. There's a Karmakanda, there's a Jnanakanda. They're not only fighting against the Buddhists or the Jains, they're fighting against the Jnanakanda people. Because within the Vedic culture, there's this big internal debate going on. There's this big debate going on. Like who really is king of the hill in Vedic culture. So they say that of all the Vedic books, including the Upanishads, that talk about the soul and eternal life, and God, and so on and so forth, they say, really, uh, the whole purpose of, of everything in Vedic culture, the whole purpose of all Vedic culture, is just this. That you should sacrifice, you must sacrifice, and, you know, you go to heaven if you sacrifice. You want to go to heaven? Do the sacrifice. Now, what about other Vedic literature? What about the, the Jnanakanda, like the soul, and eternal life, and God, and all that? Well, that's just trying to, how is it, real self-realization, real self-realization to really understand yourself as a soul means to understand yourself as a sacrificer. Now, what's interesting about this is, remember, they reduce all of life, 
all of religious life, all of spiritual life, all of philosophy, everything boils down to performing these Vedic rituals and going to heaven. And so if you find a book that says, understand the soul and get eternal life, that means understand yourself as a sacrificer or a patron of sacrifice. And uh, that's what it all means. So it's interesting, what I find very interesting about this view, and by the way, it's atheistic. This is an atheistic view. And we'll, we'll, we'll see why it's atheistic. Because here you have something which is similar to some forms of Buddhism. There's many forms of Buddhism. In the sense of taking something to an absolute extreme. Taking something to an absolute extreme. And so what's being taken to an extreme here? First of all, ritual. I don't think in the history of the world, any other civilization or any other group develops such a sophisticated analysis of ritual in terms of, because the rituals are, of course, enjoined in the Vedas, and they're described in the Vedas, and that's language. So you have to know about language. So they had a very sophisticated study of language. They had to make sure no one else tried to beat them out in terms of saying, this is what the Vedas really mean. So they became masters of grammar, masters of language, so that no one else could compete with them in their grammatical and literary interpretation of the Vedas. And uh, they became masters of ritual. They analyzed, I don't want to say to death, but they analyzed every little aspect of the ritual, sequences of ritual. When do you light the fire? When do you put something in the fire? If it says in the Vedas that you have to offer a cup, with some ingredient in the cup. What kind of cup do you use? How many cups? What if it doesn't say how many cups? And so they just uh, intellectually very sophisticated and ritual was really actually keeping the universe going. Ritual, these Vedic rituals are actually sustaining the universe. I mean, how could that possibly be the case? I mean, how could a ritual sustain the universe? Well, First of all, the Vedas. The Vedas are called Parusha. Uh, you know the word Purusha by now, right? Purusha Sutta. Purusha means person. So from the word Purusha, you get the word Parusha, uh, which means coming from the person. Something which is derived from a person. So they said that the Vedas are a Parusha. They don't. They have no author. They're not written by God. They're not revealed by God or anyone else. The Vedas eternally exist. And even if the universe goes through cycles of creation and, and destruction, even cosmic cycles, the Vedas somehow are this eternal language that just floats through the eons and floats through in its own space, floats through creation and destruction cycles and continues to exist independently. And actually, the power the power is in the Vedas. The power is in the actual sound, the actual language of the Vedas. The power is not in any God. And so I want to read you a few things here about these people. You can see how God's... In other words, the process works automatically. It's like if you go to the DMV to get a driver's license, and you're qualified, you, know, you have the right documents, and you pass the driving test, and you pay the money, the person behind the desk has to give you the driver's license. Has to give you the driver's license. That person is a bureaucrat that has no discretionary power. The person behind the counter can't say, show me that you love me. 
<laughs> and I will reveal your driver's license. <laughs> or, you know, worship me and no. Well, it's actually in some countries you do have to do that. <laughs> worship them with money. Yes. So in, that's really the difference you could say between what we would consider civilized places and uncivilized places. Let's say you move somewhere in America, some other country, and you went to get a driver's license, and the guy behind the counter said, well, I'm sorry, you have to, uh, you know, make it worth my while. <laughs> so, I mean, you'd probably be outraged and say, wait a second, this is the law. The law is that, you know, I pay my money, I pass it, test, I've got proof of identity, you have to give me a driver's license. So, the Mimamsa people say, you don't really need gods. In fact, categorically, because they categorize everything, they have this huge analysis of ritual, they say that the gods, basically, are in the same category as this sacrificial paraphernalia. Like, you've got this special super-duper spoon, because you've got a spoon to get into the fire, and you've got to make the offerings. So, I mean, and you should see some of the spoons they have. I mean, they're like, <laughs> you know, you have your holster. And, and so, so just as there's a spoon, and there's little sacrificial cups, and you've got the firewood, and you've got, you know, all kinds of little things that you offer, the gods are just another kind of paraphernalia. They're cosmic bureaucrats. They have to give you what you want. And, and actually, the Imamsas um, resisted they resisted any idea of a supreme god. The idea that there's a supreme god, capital G, there's a god that really has discretionary power. They resisted that. They were actually atheists. Yes? What are you referring to, Mass? Oh, the Mansikas? Yeah, what is it called? Oh. Or is it up there somewhere? Oh, I guess not. That's not your book? No. Uh, god, I left myself no space here. I've uh, been so diligent doing everything on the board. Mimansaka. They're often called Mimansakas. Their school is often called Purva Mimansa, the first Mimansa. Isn't that in the book? Oh, okay. Mimansa. Mimansa means thinking really hard. And it comes to mean like exegesis. So Mimansakas are people that do this exegesis. Now we're going to cover very soon that there were six Orthodox Vedic schools. In, in response to the challenge of Buddhism and Jainism, uh, you could say intellectuals, philosophers, India basically presented six different approaches. This is very famous, the Shaddarshan, the six approaches. And we'll cover all of them. And so two of them are called Mimamsa, technically. So the Purva Mimamsa is the first Mimamsa. And the Uttara Mimamsa is the later Mimamsa, that's Vedanta. And the reason they're called Purva first and Uttara later, like posterior, use more academic word, is because if you remember, in the Vedas themselves, the, the oldest literature, the oldest level is the, the Vedic Sanghitas, Rig Veda and all that stuff. And that's the ritual literature. So because the ritual literature is the oldest in terms of language, and the Upanishads, the knowledge part is later, so the people that were into the ritual, their analysis, their exegesis of the Vedas is called the Purva, the first Mimamsa, or the exegesis, the analysis of the first part of the Vedas. 
And the people that analyze the later part of the Vedas, Vedanta, except for the word Vedanta means Vedanta, the end of the Vedas, they're called the Uttarimamsa. And they battle each other. For an example of how they battle each other, I want to talk about Dharma, just like the Buddhists talk a lot about Dharma. The, the Buddhist teachings are Dharma, the Four Noble Truths, and how you should live as a, as, as a Buddhist. That's all Dharma. But it's a very old word. And the Vedic, Vedic side, they have their own mean, uh, sense of what it means. Now, in the, there was a Mimamsa philosopher named Jaimini. Jaimini was very important because He's the first really great Mimamsa philosopher and writes the first really important book that becomes like the reference book for everybody else. And so his book begins with this statement, Atta Ataha, I'm eliminating the phonetic stuff. Right, Charlie? Eliminate all that stuff. But the, so these are the, the original words. Atta, now Ataha, therefore, Dharma. Dharma. And we'll see what they mean by Dharma. Jigyasa. In the word jigyasa, uh, the wish to know dharma. Kya is the root, like kavni, and you know, remember, and remember the, the fifth skanda for the Buddhists? The fifth skanda for the Buddhists, the five components of your false identity. The fifth one is vijnana, from this word kya, to know. So anyway, this form of the word means now the desire, and the therefore is supposed to mean that you've already tried everything else. You tried everything else, you realized that it just didn't give you that, what you were looking for. Now, therefore, let's get to the real stuff. The real stuff is Dharma. Now, therefore, the desire to know Dharma. It's interesting that Vedanta, which we're going to talk about a lot, the Vedanta, which is really the, the big winner in this whole thing with Buddhists and Jains and Mimamsa, the big winner philosophically is going to be uh, Vedanta. They're the ones that are going to actually dominate India up to the present day, really, in terms of philosophy and understanding what life, what life is all about. So, in the Vedanta, the Vedanta begins with the same sentence, but instead of saying, atta, atta, now then, dharma jigyasa, they will say, now then, jnana, uh, whoops, atato brahma, sorry. Brahma is the absolute of the Upanishad, we're going to be talking all about that. So this is the difference between the first Mimamsa, or the former Mimamsa, or just the Mimamsakas, who are into rituals and all that. They say, now then, that you've come to real understanding the desire to know Dharma. And Vedanta will say, now then, the desire to know Brahma, the Absolute. And they'll battle over this. So there's a real melee, intellectual melee going on here in India at this time. It's very interesting. No one's killing each other, but they're really going at it. They're having, they're really wrestling over these things. The Buddhas and the Jains are competing because the Jains are still there. And even though they're not so numerous now, the Jains are actually quite prominent in some parts of India. So the Jains and the Buddhists are basically debating. And meanwhile, both of them are debating the Vedic people. The Vedic people are debating among themselves. And, uh, because the, and everyone's kind of like dogpiling on the Buddhists in the sense of, um, because the Buddhists are becoming very prominent. And so all the different Vedic schools are against the Buddhists. So both the Vedanta people and the Mangsa people, they're arguing against the Buddhists. And within Buddhism, there's all kinds of debates going on. Between the Theravads and the Theravadins and the Mahayana, within the Mahayana. And so it's, um, to say the least, it's a very interesting intellectual environment. I mean, there. People are really alive to ideas back then. 
at least the people that are involved in this. So it's it's all happening there in ancient India. Now, uh, any questions so far? Yes. How is it that they resisted the idea of a supreme god, or they were in fact studying the Rig Veda, which earlier you said is monotheistic? Or well, there's the Purusha hymn, but they but it, in the Rig Veda you find all the seeds, but you don't find an explicit theism developed the way you do later. Like in the Puranas, when a study in the Mahabharata, there's a very powerful, explicit, developed, old-time religion. You know, God, worship God, love God, and so on. But in the Rig Veda, it is uh, sophisticated enough and sort of condensed enough so that they can, you know, they can find a way to get around that. It's not explicit enough to knock them out. Yes? Um, regarding that, did the Mimantrikas, uh, were they not connected with the Brahmanas? The Brahmana, the Brahmana literatures? Oh yeah. Like oh sure, but they were the masters of the Brahman literature. Because the Brahman literatures talk about ritual and, and these people are, you know, the, the rulers of ritual. So that's, that's their stuff. Did they have separate Brahmana texts, or did they... Well, they write, no, yeah, they write commentaries and all that stuff. Okay. But they accept the Brahmins, they're the ones that master the Brahmins. Okay. They, they control the people's access to that literature. So, I mean, for example, they have some interpretation... Well, Jaimini, Jaimini is the Mansa Sutra, that's an example. Okay. They take all the injunctions, all the information of the Brahmins and the Vedas, and they analyze it so exhaustively, that, I mean, they just, you know, they're, they totally master every tiniest little detail of it. So anyone, even today, even today in India, if you want to have some sacrifice done or some ritual, generally the rules are what's coming down from the Imansas. So they basically were the masters of ritual for everybody. So as masters of ritual, okay, fine. But they wanted to go beyond that and to be the final arbiters of what's real in the universe. And it's at that point that people said no, and the Vedantas just, you know, went to the mat with them. So, uh, yes? So we completely ignore that statement, I don't know if it was the first book of the Rig Veda, the tenth that says, Sad Vishnu Paramam Padam. Well, Paramam Padam, the highest place, but then, what does that mean? It's, uh, so obviously other people are interpreting it in different ways, but it's not explicit enough, or detailed enough, or elaborate enough, there's not enough of it, to, uh, although, frankly, the people who argued that, yes, this is about God, this is about a higher realm, they eventually convinced the people of India. Because the people of India ultimately went with Vedanta and Bhakti. And so obviously the arguments, it didn't convince the Imamsas, but it convinced most other people. So, um, a few things about them. Uh, What's interesting is they see themselves as the center of the universe, which is, you may wonder if that's the healthiest way to look at yourself. <laughs> the nonsense. I, I want to make a few comparisons here. I want to cover all this stuff. Um, Nagarjuna, our friend Nagarjuna, who said, who, who, you know, shunyata, emptiness, emptiness. So Nagarjuna basically sees the whole universe as he analyzes it in a way that it is sort of helpful for his meditation. In other words, it, the easiest way not to become attached to anything in the world is just to conclude there isn't anything in the world, there's nothing to get attached to. 
So there's a real world out there, but you can't say things really exist because they're all interdependent. They're all just a bunch of moving parts. That's all a chair is. It's just a moving part. There's no real thing to grab onto. The moving parts are made of moving parts. And therefore, there are no, in the highest sense, real things. So don't become attached to anything because there isn't anything. I mean, the world exists, but any object you look at, you can dissolve into all kinds of parts, and those parts dissolve, and there's nothing really to grab onto, so therefore be detached. It's kind of subordinate ontology to psychology. It's like, it's like we say nowadays, people will say, Does it, if that works for you, then go with it. Like, I have a new philosophy. Well, if it works for you, if it makes you feel good about yourself, then I guess that's true for you. In other words, philosophy is just an instrument of psychology. If something makes you feel good, then it's philosophically true for you. And as far as something being philosophically true outside your mind and feelings, who cares about that? And so there's this idea that the Buddha, I'm not saying that's the way to go, but so there's, there's a sense in which Nagarjun says the universe is just whatever is useful for my meditation and other people's meditations. So if thinking of the universe in a certain way helps our meditation, then that's the way we should think about the universe. Because it really doesn't matter what the universe is. Uh, all that matters is our meditation. And there's a sense in which, in my humble opinion, there is a, there's something the same going on here, bless you, with the Mimongsa people, because they say that, oh, how do they maintain the universe? Never explain that. It's like, let's say the government has a lot of power, the U.S. government. They have like, you know, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and all kinds. They have a treasury, which they can... Anyway, we'll talk about the government. <laughs> the point is, even though you individually don't have as much power as those people do, still, if everyone doesn't pay their taxes, the government falls. So there's a sense in which they believe that by offering sacrifice, somehow you're paying cosmic taxes, that when you make these little offerings, these apparently trivial things, like a little clarified butter, or milk, or a fruit, or whatever, that um, that offering is transmuted because the sacrifice has cosmic power. When it goes into the fire, which is Agni, it's a god, it's somehow transformed into a cosmic power that nourishes the gods and somehow sustains the universe. So the Brahmins are sustaining through sacrifice the universe because the sacrifices have cosmic power and they transform the offering into you know, they, they somehow sustain the universe. So it turns out the Brahmas are sustaining the universe. Here you have a group of people who are teaching that we sustain the universe. Ayn Rand would be proud of them. Anyway, so, so that's not the most humble way to look at life, but that's the way they looked at it. And therefore, don't mess with the Brahmins. Like, you're attack hey, you're attacking the Brahmins, you're threatening the universe. You want to stop the sacrifices, you're going to mess up the cosmos. That's what they were teaching. Now, even though they took this strong position, they did actually respond to some of the things the uh, Jains and Buddhists were saying. For example, what we find in ancient literatures, at this time, all their animal sacrifices, which the Buddhists and Jains really bitterly complained about, they start making these little, like, uh, gingerbread animals. I don't think they actually gingerbread, but they're like... They start, they start making these little food animals and offering them. In other words, they stop offering real animals. They stop killing animals. Obviously, even though they may have taken this position like, yeah, these people, Buddhists and Jains, you know, they're Gnosticas, they're, they're against Vedic culture, they're outside our culture. But in practice, they actually, you know, got their act together. 
And so they started offering little substitutes instead of real animals. So, um, what else? Language. Yes. Just before you move on. Yes. Uh, so the Mimantikas um, uh, treated the gods like just paraphernalia, paraphernalia mm-hmm. but then they're also giving them importance. You just mentioned like they're the, paying the cosmic taxes because they maintain. Yeah, well, you pay your taxes as someone in the DMV. Do you think that person behind the counter is a great figure? They're just bureaucrats. Yes? Was that animal substitution thing, like, totally widespread? Very widespread. So... I mean, I can't say no one ever sacrificed an animal, but it became very widespread. India, basically, a lot of India became vegetarian. So the Buddhists and Jains had a very powerful effect, I mean... Sure, the animals were very grateful. And again, the sacrifice works on, to quote from our book, the sounds of sacrifice creatively are creatively effective. They automatically and certainly impersonally bring about the effect. And so the priests are really, you know, the priests are, hold the keys to cosmic order. The Brahmins. Now, language. Uh, Language, because the Vedas are language. And when you offer the hymns of the Vedas, the power of the sacrifice is doing the procedure and offering the hymns. So language is all important. And therefore, they were very concerned with language. In other words, if someone came along and had a better interpretation of the Vedas, they were in trouble. So they had to master language so they could control these ancient texts. So here's some quotes from our books. When read, the truth in the Vedas becomes self-evident. They have to have a theory of language. They had to have a theory of the relationship between language and reality. And they were realists. I've written that on the board also. Uh, Let me just go over the things I've written down so I don't write, I didn't write them in vain. In contrast to Buddhists, they were realists. In other words, they thought it's a real world. Like, we're in a real building right now, and that's a real desk you're sitting at, and this is a real piece of chalk. And so if you compare this to the Shunyata thing, emptiness, this chalk is empty. It's not really a thing. It's not, it doesn't really exist. It's empty of real existence. Now the Vedanta will say that it also, and the Bhagavad Gita will say it doesn't, it's not eternal. It's not eternal. It doesn't have the highest kind of existence, but this is really chalk. They're realists. They're common sense people. They say, look, the way you experience the world every day, you wake up in the morning and you clear your head, and you know, you see... You know, the real world, your bed, your desk, your breakfast, walking to school, your body, combing your hair. That's the real world. There's a real world out there. So they're realists. And uh, pluralists, there are really many different things. It's not all just one in an absolute sense. Like, as we'll see later with Vedanta, that the world only appears to be a variety. When you really become enlightened, according to Shankara, especially Shankara's followers were even more hardcore. Uh, it's just all one. It's just all one. But these people are pluralists. No, they're really different things in the world, and they actually exist. They may be temporary. We may not understand them perfectly. They may be dependent on other things. They may, you know, whatever. But stuff is really out there. It's, you know, it's a real world out there. So, so that's the amounts of people. And other people we're going to hear about also. Now... It's interesting if you compare the bodhisattvas. Remember the bodhisattvas who give up their own 
impersonal nirvana to come back life after life and compassionately enlighten people. Those are the bodhisattvas of the Mahayana tradition. Interestingly, the Brahmins, at least the Karmakanda Brahmins, think we're saving the world. Bodhisattvas aren't saving people. We're saving people by keeping the universe in order, by keeping Dharma going. And another point regarding, regarding so, so both sides think that, the, that we're the center of the universe. The Brahmins think we're actually, by doing sacrifices, keeping the universe going, by Dharma, because Dharma is cosmic. There's a cosmic order. It's like the logos. If you think about it, Dharma is expressed through language. The Vedas teach Dharma. And uh, what Jaimini says is, and I, I want to get this all, try to put all this together so you're not, without confusing you, that for Jaimini, of all the statements in the Vedas, the ones that are most important, the ones that are central, are the injunctions, which in Sanskrit are Vidhi. In other words, statements like this, Yajeta, you should do this, you must do this, you must not do that. It's statements that say, you must do something or must not do something, that's what it's really all about. And that's what Dharma means. Dharma is Vedic statements that say, you must or must not do something. That's Dharma. And uh, Dharma is, and, and so if you think about it, Dharma is expressed in words, and think of the book of John, in the beginning was the Logos, which means, you know, the Logos translated the word. Again, this cosmic pattern. There is a cosmic dharma, the way the universe is built. Remember the Rig Veda, the social orders, the social orders, Brahman, Kshatriya, Vaishya, and Shudra. They're not an invention. They're on the body of the Purusha. The universe is built that way. This is the law of the universe, the cosmic law. And it's also, therefore, the social law, because the cosmos society is the microcosm. You, there is a cosmos, which is fully populated by all kinds of beings, and human society is literally a microcosmos. And so as there is dharma for the universe, there is dharma within human society, and dharma is the moral principle. So, because the essence of dharma is to follow Vedic injunctions, and the central Vedic injunction is to sacrifice, therefore, it is the yajaka, the sacrificer, who is the real bodhisattva, from their point of view. Because as in Buddhism, bodhisattvas are saving people compassionately by teaching them Buddhist dharma. But Imamsas think, actually, with all due respect, we're keeping the universe going, and we're helping people, because everyone follows dharma and follows us. Look, even if you're not a brahmana now, don't worry, just follow us. You'll be a Brahmin. We can make you a Brahmin. Just like a Bodhisattva can make you a Bodhisattva. Right? Because everyone has their internal Buddha nature, their Buddha Tattu. Tathagata the Garba. Garba means like womb or embryo. And so the Tathagata, that's how Buddha introduces himself when he first comes back to his five old meditation buddies. And they call him, hey, hey, Gautam. And he says, don't call me by my name. I'm now your father, I'm the enlightened one, and so on and so forth. So he says there, I'm the Tathagata, the one who's come appropriately, or whatever it means. And so then they come, comes the idea of Tathagata Garba. The, everyone has within them the embryo of the Tathagata. You've got a little Buddha inside of you that just has to be awakened, and then you'll become a Bodhisattva. Similarly, the Brahmins say, Okay, maybe in this life you didn't win the grand prize, you didn't get born a Brahmin, 
you know, sorry. But anyway, follow us, participate in the sacrifice, do what you can. If you're a king, pay for the sacrifice. If you're a Vaishnava Sudra, you know, help in your own way. Everyone can become a Brahmin, everyone can sustain the universe, keep Dharma going, if you just follow our program. So ultimately, there is upward mobility, may not be in this life, but what's this life anyway? It's just a short, and if you think of, think of Buddhism, where they talk about millions of lives, millions of Buddhist lives, and so on and so forth. So in this huge worldview, hey, you've got to wait a life or two to become a Brahmin and, and, and you know, be one of the Jedi Knights that sustains the universe. You know, don't worry about it. Just get with the program. So they're both making these competing claims that the, we're the center of the universe. We sustain the universe, basically, in any meaningful way. I mean, the Bodhisattvas don't say we sustain the universe, but we sustain what's worth sustaining in the universe, which is Buddha consciousness. After all, when the Buddha came, even the gods came down to worship him because he's the hottest thing happening in the universe. So they're both making a similar claim coming from opposite viewpoints, really. And both of them actually are going to only get a consolation prize, at least in India, because something else is going to just come to tower over both these views. Ah, So any, any questions on these points? We didn't do language so much. We have a few minutes left. So, uh, language. Here's an example of realism. An example from the, uh, from the Mansa people. Fire cooks rice. Fire cooks rice. So, there's real fire. The, the Vedas say fire cooks rice. So therefore, there's real fire, there's real rice, there's a real cooking thing going on. This is realism. Words are talking about the real world. And if a word is in the Vedas, it must really exist, because the Vedas aren't messing with people's heads, basically. So if the Vedas say fire, they mean fire. If the Vedas say rice, they mean rice. And therefore, because the Vedas describe many different things as existing in the world, and order you to go out and do it, like go cook rice for the offering, these things must really exist. And to say they don't exist is just like getting too technical and, and playing word games, because these things are really out there in the world. And we know they're out there in the world. And even actually in our book, it mentions that in terms of Indian intellectual history, there was really a, one, at least one advantage on the Vedic side. And that is what they were saying corresponded to sort of a common sense view of reality. Let's say when you go, if you go to lunch today, after this class, I mean, you know, you really, you really want to eat lunch. I mean, you may not necessarily meditate that actually on the emptiness of your lunch, you probably are more concerned with the emptiness of your stomach. So, so in the real day-to-day world, we eat food, we drink water, we talk to our friends, we laugh, we work, we do things in the real world. And the Vedic side is saying, hey, that's the real world, as you know it. Now, there's something maybe beyond it. There's a, I mean, there's a higher way to look at it, but it's a real world. So, uh, now, it, one, not, one interesting thing about language, just as the Buddhists have to deal with this fact that Buddha talks in two different ways. On the one hand, there's kind of like this impersonal discourse, the five skandhas, take them all away and what's left. So people understood the Buddha meant there's something impersonal, some nirvana. But then he talks personally, like you and me and everybody else. And, and there's a person who's bearing the burden of the skandhas. And I had many past lives. I was a this. I was a that. I was some other thing. And there's karma. And, you know, if you don't 
straighten up and fly right, man, you're going to have some very nasty karma to eat. And so therefore, you'd better be careful, and in your last life you did this, and your next life this is going to happen. So there's all this language that really seems as if there's a person. So what the Buddhists do, they come up with this two truth theory. There's two levels of truth. That there's a certain kind of language where the Buddha is just kind of, you know, enticing kids. Like when I was a kid, my mother wanted to give me medicine. She would put the medicine like, on a spoon, liquid medicine, and say, here's a train coming through the tunnel. My mouth was a tunnel. And I had to open my mouth and in went the medicine. Now, my mother didn't really believe as far as I know, because I think by all other standards she was a sane adult. I don't think she really believed my mouth was a train tunnel and that the spoonful of medicine was a train. But it got me to open my mouth and I took the medicine. So this is the idea. Buddha's just kind of like dealing with little kids. The problem is different Buddhist schools disagreed on what the, on which is which. Like what's the real message and what's the playing with kids. But they have these two levels which they call nidartha, which means the meaning which has already been brought into clarity, or neartha, the meaning which has to be brought into clarity, or paramartha, the highest meaning, and samrithyartha, the meaning which just kind of like conceals the, the highest meaning. The Yamsas do this also because they have this very realistic theory of language. Language talks about the real world, the Vedas give the truth, but the problem is some verses in the Vedas are ambiguous, or appear to be in conflict with other verses. It's not all that, it's not totally coherent, so they got to do the same thing. Well, there's actually different levels here. So they say this, and, and so they bring in this usage thing, which is in our book, if you read the book. It's, um, usage means, well, if we look at custom, like traditionally people tended to interpret or to solve this paradox in a certain way. So let's respect tradition, and that's what it really means, and therefore the Vedas are coherent. So they've also got to deal with, you've got a huge body of literature, and you say it's got one simple meaning, but it actually goes different places. You have to start making a hierarchy of language. Like, this language is the real language, which for Jaimini and Imam says, the, the highest meaning, the highest truth, is the Vedic injunction say, do this or don't do that. That's what it's really about. It's about sacrifice. And the Upanishad stuff is just like the secondary stuff. The Vedanta side will say the opposite. Uh, any questions about that? Our waning minutes here? Have courage. It's almost over. Um... Oh, one interesting thing about the Mongsas, which is very interesting, they say that when you cognize something, let's say right now you see my hand. Now, um, the fact that you see my hand, and it looks real to you, as far as you know, I'm really here, and this is really my hand. So your cognition not only confirms that my hand exists, it confirms that you exist. Because you're an individual, conscious person. So every experience you have, every experience you have, not only reveals to you something outside yourself, it reveals to you that you exist as an individual person. So the very act of consciousness proves to you that you exist as an individual person. There's a very famous Western philosopher that argued exactly this, Mr. Of the Cards, Descartes. Um, <laughs> That's a really good card player. Anyway, Descartes' famous thing is cogito ergo sum. This is basically the monster position, which shows that they read Descartes. Cogito means I think. I'm 
thinking. And ergo, therefore, soon, you know, Spanish, soy, therefore I am. I exist. Because, you know, this is very interesting because Descartes really did the Mimamsa thing. I mean, I don't think he knew about that. In the sense that Descartes said, what if I doubt everything? What if I doubt everything that I think I know? Everything. The world exists outside of me. Everything. And then I sit down and think, is there anything which I cannot doubt? Which it would be just idiotic and unreasonable to doubt. I have to accept as true. And that's what he came up with. I think, therefore I am. So Descartes argued that my own experience of being a conscious individual person is irrefutable. In fact, it's the basis of everything else I think I know. Whether it's some philosophical truth or anything, anything else that I believe I know is based on this first truth, which I can't refute or deny that I exist as an individual conscious person. And this is basically the nonsense position. Therefore, every time we experience something, we're proving to ourselves that we exist as much as we're proving that something outside of ourselves exists. And you can see how these people are not going to have a great time with Nagarjuna. So it's sort of a common sense epistemology, which and it kind of persuades most people. Because it, it, it just corresponds more to what people on a day-to-day basis experience. So, uh, no other questions on that? Okay, another Bodhisattva act. We'll end a little early. <laughs>